Acts chapter 7. We have the longest sermon in the book of Acts, here now before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders. And we have more information about the death of Stephen than anyone in the New Testament except Jesus himself. It's a very remarkable passage as we go into it. Remember where we are, Stephen, a man full of faith and wisdom, the Holy Spirit was taking care of the widows in the church, waiting on tables, uh, making sure that uh, there was an equal distribution in regards to the need as the church had grown to thousands in no time. But it says he also was at the synagogue, and part of those were of Sicily, and that synagogue, no dank, Cilicia, no doubt Saul was there and had encountered him in his ability to speak truth and wisdom, and it said none could stand against that. So they came up with people to make phony accusations. Verse 11 in chapter 6 says they uh, suburbed men, they bribed them, hired them, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, you'll notice that, and against God. Then they stirred up the elders, it says. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And then it says, all that sat, and they're in a semicircle, There's, there were tears that went up. They sat, this is the Sanhedrin in the council. It says, they're looking steadfastly on him and as they're doing this they see his face as it had been the face of an angel there's an, an appearance no doubt the glory of God upon his face and they're astounded they're riveted they're sitting there and God's doing this on purpose because of what he wants to say to them God himself through Stephen so now he addresses, no doubt Caiaphas is there. Um, it says, then said the high priest, are these things so? The accusations we just read about wanting to do uh, damage to the things they received of Moses and wanting to uh, bring damage to the temple and his precincts. The high priest said, are these things so. And he said, now Stephen, he says, men, brethren, so he addresses them as adults. Remarkably, by the Holy Spirit, he calls them brethren. So he's owning his place amongst the Israelites and amongst those that are there. He says, men, brethren, and fathers, which means he still wants to abide by their traditions and so forth. He's owning that. Great wisdom here as God is leading. And then he says, hearken. And I think it's imperfect. You need now to be listening. It's imperative. It's, you have to listen to what I'm going to say to you now. And he begins by saying, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Now the interesting thing is here, he begins with the God of glory. He ends with, in verse 55, it says, being full of the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly to heaven and he saw the glory of God. So he begins with the God of glory. He ends with the glory of God. They're questioning him about Moses, who when he came down from, from Horeb, from Sinai, his face was glowing. No doubt here's Stephen looking like that, challenging everything they're saying about him. The glory of God upon his face. 
And he says to them, and we're thankful for this information. He tells us here, men and brethren, fathers, hearken. You, you, I, you need to listen to what I'm going to say. He tells us here that the God of glory appeared unto our father. He's standing with them. Our father, Abraham. And he appeared unto him when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So we learn this only from Stephen. We know that God had called him from Mesopotamia. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7 tells us the same thing. It tells us this in, uh, in Genesis 11 and 12 that God called him from Ur of the Chaldees, one of the great uh, excavations of Ur was from uh, our own professor here at University of Pennsylvania who spent years over there and unearthed many of these things. Um, here he tells us, but it isn't just that God called him from there, but the God of glory appeared to him there. We know this is before he dwelt in Haran, he was then in Haran until his father, Terah, died. Jewish tradition tells us that Terah was a maker of idols, particularly the moon god and the sun god and so forth, gods that were worshipped in Mesopotamia. Joshua tells us in chapter 24, it says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, the Euphrates, in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua 24, verse 14 says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord your God. So we know that Abraham was an idolater. There were no Jews. There was no such thing as Jews. Abraham was an idolater. He was a resident of Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. His father evidently a maker of idols. And as he is there... The God of glory appears to him. Then that will change the direction of your life. The God of glory appears unto Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees and said, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and so forth into a land that I will tell thee of. And is Stephen alone who tells us, evidently there were writings that Stephen knew about in his day, but the Holy Spirit is on him telling us this at this point in time. It says the God of glory actually appeared unto him, our father Abraham, when he was still in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Now when he comes into the land, Abraham, the locals there will give him the name Haburai. When the children of Israel go down into Egypt, they call them the Fenshu which were shepherds, which was derogatory because the Egyptians had farmland. They irrigated. They couldn't stand shepherds. They saw them as nomads. In Canaan, the residents called them Haburai, the Haburai, where we get the word Hebrew from. Hebrew wasn't necessarily a language when they first put that designation upon them, but the Haburai were those who kept flocks. It develops into the idea of Hebrew as a language and as a people. So Abraham is in Mesopotamia. Then God calls him. He's an idolater, not a Jew. He dwelled in Iran. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and come into the land which I will show thee. Stephen's drawing all of them to the same page, and no doubt they wouldn't disagree with what he's saying. It says, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans 
And he dwelled in Haran. It was like a 75-year detour that he shouldn't have taken. He was supposed to separate himself from his father, but he lives there with Terah. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land, Stephen says. They're sitting there in Jerusalem. Into this land wherein ye now dwell. Finally, Abraham came into this land. And he gave him no inheritance in it. God didn't give an inheritance to Abraham in the land. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. So God makes that promise to Abraham. He calls him. Abraham comes into the land of Canaan. He brings Lot with him instead of being really separated from his family and so forth. As he comes into the land, we remember there's, there's a famine. You know, you have to imagine this. Abraham comes to Sarai, who's his half-sister, his wife. His family one day says, we're headed west. Where to? I don't know. God just said, go west, young man, you know, and that he would lead us. And he heads out with his family, doesn't know where he's going. Finally, he's sidetracked in Haran until his, his father passes. And then finally from there, they come into the land of Canaan. And God, of course, said, I'll bless them that bless thee. I'll curse them that curse thee. I'll make you a blessing to all of the nations of the world. And as they come into the land of Canaan, it says the Canaanite dwelt in the land. The first thing they encounter there is a drought, a famine. The very first thing he encounters. So then Abraham, the father of faith, says, uh, we need to get out of here and head down to Egypt. So he takes his wife. He takes Lot. He takes his, his armed servants. And the whole entourage then goes down to Egypt. Because Egypt is watered by the Nile and not by the waters of heaven that God promised he would water the children of Israel with. And, of course, you know the story. They get down there, and Pharaoh looks at Sarah, and Abraham said, Do me a favor. Tell this guy you're my sister, because if he finds out you're my wife, he's going to kill me. Now, Sarah must be quite a looker at that age that Pharaoh, who has access to every beautiful woman in the civilized world, wants this woman, who's older now, Sarah, to be his own. The Egyptians did not believe in adultery. They knew it was wrong. So if you saw another's man, if you were Pharaoh and you saw another's man's wife that you wanted, you killed her husband, and then it was not adultery. So Abraham said, just tell this guy you're my sister, will you please? So they get down there, of course, Pharaoh takes Sarah, you know the story. She's thinking, oh yeah, God told me to leave Mesopotamia. God told me to go, here I am now in the harem, and you're telling people you're my sister. The promised land's full of drought and famine. We should have never, I knew we should not have listened to you. You know, you can imagine. And then, of course, God gives Pharaoh a dream. He realizes the mess that he's in, and he sends Abraham away, loads him with flocks, and herds and silver and gold. He says, just get out of here. You know, I could have been dead over this. And Abraham then comes back in the land of promise. It says literally he's overloaded with silver and gold. Overloaded. He never builds a mansion. He could have. But it says he dwells in tents because he's looking for a city that we've been studying on Sunday whose builder and maker is God. He's looking for a city with those foundations. Somehow God had put that in front of him, and he saw that. So, you know, then, of course, finally he separates from Lot. He he says, look, the land is before us. Our our herdsmen are fighting. We're brethren. It shouldn't be going on. Take what you want. And, of course, Lot looks down at Sodom and Gomorrah, And it says at that point in time, it looked like the garden of God. It looked like 
Eden. It was lush. It was beautiful. And to the natural eye, Lot makes that choice. And it says he moves. And it says, but the men of the place were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. Now, Lot is finally separated then from Abraham. And God finally then comes to Abraham and says, lift up now thine eyes from where you are. Look northward. Look, in fact, I think he starts, yeah. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And all of the land that thou seest, I will give it unto thee and to thy seed. Speaking of this, this promise here. So it's very interesting. God says to Abraham, as he says to us at times in our life, he has Abraham now at a vantage point in Genesis 13. He says, lift up. Now, King James says now. Lift up now thine eyes. The Hebrew text says, lift up, please. And because the ancient rabbis and scribes had a hard time with God saying please to a man, they translated it now. But God says to him, Abraham, like if you, you've got kids, you finally say to them, please, please, you know, look now, look, you know, because get, get doing, oh, I told you, please. We, you know, so Abraham's now, he's back from, you know, he's back from Egypt, and God says, lift up now your eyes, please, lift up, please, your eyes. And look from, not look at where you are. That's what we always want to do. Look, you don't understand where I'm at. Look at where I'm at. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't look at where you are. He says, look from where you are. He says, look northward. And personally, just sitting with a text in my own life, I know. He looked northward, and he, and he saw this track he had come into the country from the north and he had realized the delay the time that it took he hadn't separated himself from his father Terah hadn't separated himself from Lot and his crew he, he saw the trail that came into the country and of course all he could see was God's faithfulness because he, he was looking from a vantage point look from where you are please as he looked southward, no doubt he saw the footprints of his own backsliding coming up from Egypt and how often God will take us to a place and he finally allows us to see. He gives us that 2020 spiritual vision and sometimes we can see the footprints of our own backsliding. It's been so recent. We're coming back from Egypt. We've been there when we should not have been there. It's not where he called us. We get ourselves involved in something. And God preserved his life and preserved his family <laughs> through his insanity. And as he looks southward, he sees the footprints of his own backsliding. And all he can see in that is God's grace, God's faithfulness. And then God says, look eastward. And as he stood there and looked eastward, he overlooked the plain where Sodom was, where Lot had gone. And he knew eastward was Mesopotamia and Ur, the Chaldees, where he had come from. And I think as we do that in our lives, I think, Lord, you took me out of drugs. You took me out of the world. Would I still be alive today if it wasn't for you, Lord Jesus? He's saying, please look from where you are, Joe. And all I can see is his faithfulness and his grace. Took me out of the world. Took me from Ur the Chaldees. Took me from other gods. And I was so slow in the process. As I looked northward, I could see, I'm, you know, I'm such a knucklehead. Took me so long. I look south and I see, even, even after he finally gets his hands on my life, I backslide. I do stupid things. I go in this direction. And in every direction. I, I, and then finally, of course, he says, look Westward, westward was the great sea. Westward was all the horizons. Westward was Bethel, the house of God, you know. And it's almost like those are the new horizons. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and God would say to us, look westward, please, from where you are. 
all the new horizons. Jerusalem was to the west. Everything was there. And he said to Abraham, all right, walk through the land, the height, the breadth, the length of it. Everything that you see, I'm going to give it to you and to your seed. And it says, from there, Abraham then went to Hebron, and he pitched his tent, and he built an altar. Hebron means communion or fellowship. No coincidence there. After God let Abraham see his faithfulness and his goodness, after Abraham really saw life from where God had brought him to that vantage point, as he looked from where he was, it says his journey from there was to communion, was to fellowship. Hebron, which is in Mamre, the shoulder, you know, the communion there, leaning on the shoulder of God, no doubt. And he sets up his tent. He doesn't build a mansion. He's overloaded with silver and gold. He sets up his tent, and he builds an altar. And, of course, we know that. We talk about it here. He's the man of the tent, and he's the man of the altar. The tent defines his relationship with this world. The altar defines his relationship with the next world. He knew it was temporary. He knew he couldn't find that city here, though he looked for it. But he knew he couldn't go to the next world without the blood of a sacrifice, you know. And he becomes the friend of God. What a title. What a title. He's the only one. He's, he's venerated by the Muslims, by the Jews, and by the Christians. This man who was the friend of God. And it tells us that here. He came out of the land of the Chaldeans. He removed him into the land where you now dwell. And he gave him no inheritance in it. No, not so much as a place to set his foot. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him. When as yet he had no child. And they take pride in that, of course. We're children of Abraham and, you know. John the Baptist said, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. It isn't by DNA, your children of Abraham. It's by faith, your children. You and I are called children of Abraham in that respect. And God spake on this wise that his seed, and Paul will take point, it's singular, should sojourn in the land, and they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil for 400 years. So he said, he said, you'll come into the land, the children of Israel will settle there, but you're going to go down into Egypt. Interesting, in Genesis 15, he said, in the fourth generation, I'll bring you out. And here it says it was 400 years. There are places where you're studying in depth. It's actually 430 years because it adds the years as they were going through the whole process of coming and settling. But there, interesting, it says a generation is 100 years. I hope it's not, because Israel was reborn in 1948, and I want to be way out of here by 2048, you know. So it's, it says they would be entreated evilly there for 400 years. And God would say to Abraham, you know, I'm going to take you down there for 400 years. I'm going to form a nation then I'm going to bring you back because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet come to a full. God says, I'm going to use Israel when I bring you back to judge the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, or the termites, all of them. <clears throat> and he says, but their iniquity has not yet come to a full. God measures time morally, not by the calendar, not by the clock. You know, Jesus said the last days it would be like the vultures or the eagles flying over the carrion. When you would see that, you would know that there's a carcass, there's something rotten. And just we see it today in the news. We see it everywhere. You know, the, the birds of prey, as it were, are gathering. There's a rotten carcass, you know, that in this world. It's a cauldron. It's a mess. And here he's going to take them down into Egypt for 400 years. And when he brings them out, he's going to use them to judge the Amorite, God is just. And even that, as they come in the judge, he preserves a prostitute who lives on the wall. 
You know, even in all of that judgment, he has this woman who says, we heard of you. The fear of you is upon our land. We know you defeated the, the Egyptian army. We know your God is strong about. We know that he is the God. It's remarkable to see as they come into the land, God will even honor those who still would extend faith to him. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, God says. And said, God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Now, there were other cultures that circumcised, but he made it a covenant with the nation of Israel. It was a symbol of cutting away the flesh. It was a literal physical exercise. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. That's when they were to circumcise. That's when vitamin K forms in your system, and that's when your blood can coagulate. If you cut a baby before the eighth day, they can bleed out. He circumcised him, it says, on the eighth day. And then Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And and these guys are sitting there listening to him. His face is shining. And he's bringing them to a point where he has to say some things to them. He's going to talk to them about Joseph, as we move into this now, that Joseph was a a leader, a deliverer that God raised up, and yet he was rejected of his brethren. And his brethren didn't receive him until they saw him the second time down in Egypt. In the meantime, he had taken a Gentile bride and preserved her through seven years of famine and tribulation. And he's such a picture of Jesus Christ that Stephen uses all of the details to put that before the Sanhedrin and said, our fathers in the past have rejected God-ordained deliverers that God raised up, and finally they're so hard-headed, the second time they encountered him down in Egypt, then they accepted him, and they were the beneficiaries of what this man Joseph had done. So he's going to work his way there, and he's going now, Abraham, verse 8, Isaac, then he's going to Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. That's where he's bringing them. And the patriarchs moved with envy. He's going to say through this, this place, the land, over and over, you're going to notice if you read through on your own, the fathers, the fathers, the fathers. And when he talks about the fathers, it's not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he calls the patriarchs here the twelve sons of Jacob, the fathers. It says the patriarchs moved with envy. We know they were, they were the, the, the ten older brothers of Joseph, the younger one being Benjamin. The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And he's going to say finally at the end, this is your history. You know, the, what your fathers did, they were stiff-necked, you're the same. Here is someone that God raised up, and because they were envious of him, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he hath made him governor over, governor over Egypt and all of Pharaoh's house. So this is such an interesting process. You know, you, you watch Abraham, and he, he went through that. He's led by faith. And then Abraham has a son of promise, Isaac, you know. And then you have Isaac with Esau and Jacob. Um, but Isaac, the house divided, there's the trouble there, all of the difficulty. And finally, the promise goes to Isaac. He pronounces the blessing. And then Isaac, I mean, Jacob then, through a dream, because Rebekah tried to deceive Isaac, he was blind. 
you know, he, he, the blessing ends up going on Jacob, even though he stole it. He didn't have to steal it. It was his, but he stole it. And Jacob then, through a dream, God ascending, the angels of God ascending and descending so forth, realizes, well, you're going to go in Paddan Aram, and then you're going to return to this land. Jacob says, look, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you get me back here safe and sound, I'll give you a cut. I'll give you 10%. It's, he's Jacob all the way. It's remarkable, you know. And then, But and then through a dream, he goes into this foreign land, and God does then restore him. Then Jacob goes through this whole thing with wrestling with the Lord there at, at Jabbok. And uh, God touching, put his, his hip out of joint, defeats him, changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means governed by God. And in his old age as a broken man, through Rachel, he has Joseph, who ends up to be his favorite son. And he tells Joseph, look, you know, your grandfather Abraham and your grandfather Isaac and Jacob, God did this with us. And we had trouble. And, you know, Esau didn't recognize his own brother. But, you know, Jacob had to flee. But then as he fled, God gave him a dream. And in the dream, you know, he knew he would be brought back. He saw that God was sovereign. So he went there and he labored seven years uh, for Rachel. And then on the wedding night, Laban deceived him. He Jacobed him and he gave him Leah instead of Rachel. And then he had to serve for seven more years for the one that he loved to have her. And God was faithful and God dwelt in his life. And he teaches this to Joseph when he's little, who has a dream. And in his dream, he sees the sun and the moon and the stars. He sees his father and his mother bowing down with his brethren who reject him like Esau. He's listened to this from the time he was little. It's reproduced in his life. Then he goes down into Egypt. He's sold as a slave on the auction block. And down in Egypt, then... He goes into Potiphar's house and he serves for seven years in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He doesn't go for it. She accuses him of something he doesn't do. Then he goes into the prison for seven more years. It's such a repetition of the family and the troubles. You know, there, there are scary families in the Bible and this was one of them. And at the end of that period, in one day, because he interprets the dream of the baker and so forth, the one guy gets killed, and the other guy said, ah, when Pharaoh has his dream, I can't believe I forgot it. There's this Jewish guy in prison. He can interpret dreams. And he brings him out. And then again, it's years of seven. He interprets the dream. Seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. And uh, in one day, he's shaved, he's given that black mascara and a golden hat, and he immediately he becomes the second most powerful person on the planet overnight, Joseph, by God's hand. And it's a pathway we would never have prescribed. If somebody said, this is God's man, God's going to put, as it says in this book of Psalms, iron in his soul. God's going to use him in such a remarkable way. He's going to preserve the nation of Israel so the Messiah can come someday. You would never have thought it would have happened that way. His brothers hate him. They saw him as a slave. They put blood on his clothes and told his dad, Jacob, an animal got him. He goes down there and he serves faithfully and he gets accused of rape for that. Then he gets thrown in prison. This is the pathway. No thanks. It's like it's like God saying to Paul, I'm going to take you to Rome. You think, okay, El Al, book the flight, you know, get me there. No, it's shipwreck, and you're trying to get warm by the fire, and a snake bites your hand. I appreciate the fact that he threw the snake in the fire, though. You know, but this long thing, you wouldn't imagine, this is God's design. We get in the middle of difficult things. We get in the middle of circumstances. And sometimes we think, God, I, I thought you told me something else. I thought your blessing was going to be there. And I'm in the middle of all of this insanity. 
And all along it was God's plan and there was a design. And I gripe. I'm not talking about any of you. I'm talking about moi. I so easily gripe and complain. You know, I, I teach the church about God's power and God's love, and I get a flat tire, and it's the end of the world. I get so easily pulled from. What do you want me to think about? But we have over and over, the Psalms mention Joseph. We hear this, that God took him on this incredibly difficult path to raise him up, not only to preserve his brethren, but to preserve the world, to preserve Egypt. Remarkable uh, what took place. Um, so it tells us now this Joseph, this deliverer, it says God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over all of Egypt and over his own house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt. Egypt was prepared because of Joseph. And, and it came on Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers, this is the other 11 boys, found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn as grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers, ten of the boys, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is our fathers, he sent our fathers first, and they go down into Egypt. And it says, and at the second time, you remember the whole deal, he loads them up, you know, he does all this stuff with them, and then he hides one of his, his you know, silver kind of divining urns in one of their sacks of, uh, of grain, and then he comes and finds out he has them all drugged back in. What do you think you're doing? You're stealing. They said, oh, no, don't do this. He said, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep one of your brothers here. I think it was Simeon. Keep one of your brothers here. You're going to go back to land. Don't you have any other brothers? I'm only taking one brother. Yeah, we got this young brother, Benjamin, but he's the, you know, the lifeblood of our fathers. He said, you go back and you bring Benjamin down to me. And when you bring Benjamin down to me, then I'm going to know you're honest men. And, of course, they didn't make a movie of this story. I mean, it's unbelievable. He goes, and then Jacob says, you're killing me. I got one kid. That's something to say to your other nine sons, right? Your other, I got one kid. You know, I had two, and he got eaten by an animal. I got one. What are we, you know, chopped liver, you know? And he says, all right, take him, take him, but bring him back. I'm going to die if, you know. So, so then they go down with Benjamin. And, of course, Joseph calls them. So it's the second time now, it says. And, they're gonna, and, and Stephen is saying, you're going to recognize Christ the second time he comes. This is the habit of our nation and of our fathers and of our people. And he calls them into the feast. Well, when he gets them in the feast, he sits them down in their birth order at the table. And then for Benjamin, he gives him five times the rest. He honors him as the, you know, the, the honored son. And they're freaked out. They're sitting, he's going to kill us. What is this? How could he possibly know our birth order? How could he possibly know? And as they're talking, of course, Joseph hears them. And he's overcome. And he goes out of the room to cry. And his mascara is running. You know, it's a mess. And then he comes back and he reveals himself to his brethren. And they're terrified because they think we sold him into slavery. We told our father he was dead. We threw him in a pit and sat down and had lunch. You know, he's gonna, he said, no, no, you might have meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And look at what he's done. And there's no sustenance anywhere in the world. I want you to go up and get dad. I don't want you to bring him down. And they go and they tell Jacob, Jacob, you're, you're, you're messing with me. You know, you can't, are you kidding me? You didn't bring Benjamin back. You, you, you know, and, and they said, no, Dad, it's Joseph. And, of course, he looks at the wagons they came up with filled with grain, golden wheels, what, you know, the whole deal. And, of course, Jacob goes and then they come down into 
Egypt and he sees his son Joseph. It just has to be a movie, man. It's just so incredible. He brings in Jacob to introduce him to Pharaoh. The first thing Pharaoh says is, how old are you? Anyway, he probably didn't look real good, you know. Tough years there had been. So it it says, then Joseph... Well, verse 13, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. He met their family and then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred. It says here, three score and 15 souls to rescue his rejectors which is why Jesus came to rescue his rejectors. So the interesting picture here, of course, it says, for those of you that chew on every morsel here, obsessive, it says here that there's 75 souls. It says in Exodus, other places, 70. So the interesting thing is Stephen's a Hellenist, He's reading the Septuagint, which is Greek, and the Septuagint always says 75 in those places instead of 70. You can go to Chronicles and realize there's five cousins that aren't mentioned in another place that really bring this number to 75, so there's no dispute. The point is, don't think you're going to prove the Bible's wrong by arguing over 70 or 75, you might as well be sitting in a semicircle with the Sanhedrin listening to somebody trying to tell them the truth. It says here that he came down with three score, 15, 75 souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and he died there. And of course he was content to do that. His family was there, they flourished he and our fathers, so the, the sons of Jacob, of the children of Israel, died there as well. And it says, and they were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Hemor, the father of Shechem. So again, controversy here. We know that Jacob was buried in Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah, which is in Hebron today, the, the, the grave is still there, with Isaac. And, uh, of course, Rachel was buried in another tomb that's been desecrated. Um, but it says here that that Abraham bought this parcel of ground from Hebron. When you read through the records, even in Joshua 24, it says that Jacob bought the ground. Instead of a controversy, you study a little bit and you find out Abraham was still alive when Jacob bought the ground. So Jacob, because of the patriarchal system, could only buy it on behalf of Abraham. And Jacob, it says, our fathers were buried in Shechem, not Jacob, he's buried in Machpelah with his father and his grandfather Abraham, but the rest of the sons of Jacob are buried, including Joseph, when he's brought up there at Shechem, and his tomb has been desecrated as well, sadly. And it says, and they were carried and laid in the sepulcher there at Shechem, and that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the Amor, the, the father of Shechem. And when the time of promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the 400 years coming to their full, the people, notice it says here, they grew and they multiplied in Egypt until, verse 18, another king arose which knew not Joseph. So it's heteros there. Another of a different kind of king arose in Egypt. Those of you who have Edersheim's Old Testament history, go to these chapters in the beginning of Exodus. He breaks it down wonderfully. Those of you who love the Old Testament and don't have Edersheim, who was training to be a rabbi, was saved, converted, 
Those of you who love the Old Testament and don't have Edersheim's Old Testament history, shame on you. Get it. You know, skip skip uh, McDonald's for a week. Get the book. It's worth having because he says that when the the children of Israel with Jacob came down into Egypt, northern Egypt, which was considered lower Egypt because of where it was on the, the Nile Delta, upper Egypt, which we would think was north, was southern Egypt. You all get that because it's on the other side of the equator, so I hope you're all confused completely now. But when they when they came down there into the land, there was a dynasty that came from outside called the Hyksos dynasty, who took over southern Egypt up by the Mediterranean, the Delta Nile, and they defeated the Egyptians and drove them to upper Egypt. The Hyksos dynasties, they were called the shepherd kings. And even their identity is hard to nail down, but it's written in history. This was God's hand because the Egyptians hated shepherds. They hated them. Even in the Hyksos dynasty, they put the children of Israel in Goshen. They gave them their own separate point, part of land so that they wouldn't intermingle with the Egyptians. But they honored them because of Joseph. After 400 years, there was a battle, and the original Egyptian dynasties again defeated the Hyksos dynasties and took over then Lower Egypt again. And this other pharaoh then, it tells us here, comes to power, which knew not Joseph. And when he came to power, the same, notice verse 19, dealt subtly with our kindred, And evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. Those of you that are going to go pray in regards to this abortion thing, please take note of this. There is another king who knew not Joseph, and he dealt subtly. This whole abortion, this whole life issue is dealt with in our culture so subtly. It should be plain and easy to see. And I'm not condemning anyone here or anyone who's listening who's had an abortion. When we come to Christ, all of that's forgiven. And you have a reunion waiting for you in heaven. That's how gracious our God is. But it says here there's a subtlety to it. He dealt subtly with our kindred. And his entreatment to kill their children, it says, was evil. It's evil. Every abortion, again, is a mockery of the only God who has the right to sacrifice his son. It says here, he evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. Tells us there's an evilness about that. Verse 20 says, and in the time in which time Moses was born. Here's the second example of a man that God raises up whom they accuse Stephen of not honoring. And he's going to say, oh yeah, well when Moses was born, who was God's deliverer, the children of Israel wouldn't recognize him. They wouldn't listen to him, even though he was the deliverer that God raised up to save them, which is all a picture of Christ, who they hate because Stephen's preaching Christ, and he's taking him through the the ropes here, proving his point. So when we get to, to verse 20, we head into Moses for 26 verses now. Very interesting. Um... Moses, Moshe, Moshe, sometimes in Israel today, they they take their son because of what's going on. It says they nourish him for three months. They had to keep him quiet because Pharaoh was paying the midwives to throw the children in the Nile, and they were refusing. So he's sending spies into the area of Goshen to listen for the cries of newborns, And they're taking the male children, not the females, the male children, and killing them. Well, it says that his parents nourished him up for three months. They kept him quiet. 
and no doubt at God's leading, they take bulrushes and they make a little ark. They put they daub it so that it's waterproof, and they put Moses in there and they push him out in the Nile so that he doesn't drown. There's questions. Is Moses' mother, are they aware that Pharaoh's daughter comes to that area of the Nile? Possibly because it seems like his sister Miriam, who's older, follows that ark. You know the story. Pharaoh's daughter sees the ark and the babe and draws him out of the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses, which means drawn out. We have no idea what his Jewish name is. He's the greatest patriarch of the Jewish people, and they don't know his name. Isn't it interesting? Moses is an Egyptian name. He names him Moses, which means drawn out, because she drew him out of the Nile, and then she sees somehow this little Jewish girl there, Miriam, and she says, I need a midwife. I need somebody to nurse this. Because do you know any Jewish midwives? Miriam says, funny thing, I do know somebody. And Moses' own mother ends up nursing him and raising him until he's old enough to go then to Pharaoh's court. So they instill in this child all of the truths about Jehovah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth so that Moses carries this in his heart. You instill the right things into a heart of a two-year-old. You know, Jewish mothers, when they have little babies, will, will lean down and say, say, Yahweh. Say the name of their God, Yahweh. Just even before you, you wonder whether they have, you know, comprehension the ear is a funny way it functions. It's funny, and you have a you have a, a library in your head of sounds. We sit here tonight. We're in a Bible study. If somebody sneezes, you know that. If somebody's phone goes off right in the middle of study, you hear that. You got a library. Oh no, there it goes. They told them to turn those things off. We're sitting here. If it starts to rain, you hear that. You know what that is. If a siren goes by outside as we're studying, you hear that. You don't pay attention to it. You're in here, but you know what that is. You know what that sound is. So the Hebrew mothers would take the little children and just go, Yahweh, whisper God's name in their ear because there's a library that was being formed. You know, teach your children, the Bible says, from the time they're little. We should do that. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. We dedicate the children on Sunday. God is not mocked. The world is not going to steal them away. God is going to have his way, and he gives them to us in a stewardship. So this man Moses then, raised by his own mother, says he was born, he was exceeding fair, and the, the Hebrew is, he was exceeding fair in the sight of God, and nourished up in his father's house for three months, and then cast out and Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him as her own son. And in the Egyptian dynasties, it was the son of the royal mother, not necessarily the royal father, that inherited the throne. It says, and Moses, very interesting here, Josephus mentions it, Hebrew tradition says that by the time Moses was 30 years old, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, that he had defeated the Ethiopian army, which was an incredible victory, at 30 years old. It, it tells us here, nowhere else, we don't have this information anywhere else in the Bible, it says Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Evidently, he had that great victory. So he's learned in all of the things of the Egyptians. It means he knows hieroglyphics. Some of that seems to come out in some of the... There's an early Hebrew text. Today we have Hebrew or Aramaic letters that spell Hebrew words... But before Arameans, there was an ancient Hebrew text 
And the ancient Hebrew text, there's only about seven people in the world today that can read it, but like instead of Beth, the, it, the letter was shaped like a tent because it meant tent or house of, you know. So, so the ancient Hebrew language was almost like hieroglyph. It was almost pictorial. So it was easy. So Moses, no doubt, you know, tutored by God, these things he had learned would come to play as the nation is delivered. So it's hieroglyphs, language, science, you know, medicine. You know, the, I hope I'm not boring you. You know, in in the in Cairo, in the museum, they have records of one pill when people got this particular amoeba from the Nile River, which still is alive today and will still kill people today. The Egyptians had a single pill that cured it. Huh? So Moses learned all this. He learned about the, the medicine there in Egypt. There's science. Uh, you know, the Great Pyramid in Giza, the largest building in the world. The base of it covers 13 acres. They've discovered now, because of ground-penetrating ra radar, that the four corners are sockets that are set into the ground that make the whole thing stable. The northern side of it is more true north than the Paris Observatory. You know, um, I forget, tw 250,000 stones or whatever. M most of them are over two and a half tons. There's no scrapes on them. They didn't get there with sand, you know, or there would be mountains of sand around. They weren't rolled on logs that would have deforested the entire Middle East. They have no idea how the stones were moved. Inside, you have the Great Hall. It's 275 feet long, carved through this solid stone, and it's a quarter inch off from one end to the other from the wear of the centuries. We couldn't produce it today with anything but a laser. What went on there? Were the Nephilim involved? You know what? When well, What was going on there? So, but Moses was learned in all of the science, the medicine, the astronomy, the math. They were masters. Culture, geology, geometry, these people. And Moses has learned in all of that and then Stephen tells us he was mighty in words and in deeds. We're not going to get much further in this this evening. So that's an interesting idea because when God appears to Moses and says, I'm going to send you to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses said unto the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since. Thou hast spoken unto thy servant, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I can't talk. Stephen tells us he was eloquent and powerful in his speech. But when you stand in the presence of God, you're not real impressed anymore with your ability. You know, it says the angel of God was standing in the middle of the fire. And it tells us there, as, as the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush... It says, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And it tells us it was the angel of the Lord in the fire. The Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, undoubtedly. And Moses, when he falls down there, says, I can't talk. I can't talk, you know. God's trying to get this guy to cooperate. I mean, you know, he tells him, throw down your staff. He throws down a staff. It turns into a serpent and says, Moses got up and high-tailed out there. He already took his shoes off, so he's running through the desert bare feet. God has to say, get back here, you know? And then he says, I can't talk. He said, oh, hey, you know, well, I don't know if God said that. But he said, he said, I created the tongue. You're telling me, you know, that when I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, your brother Aaron can talk. I'm going to send him with you. I'll give you the commands and let Aaron be, he can be your spokesman. What a remarkable, you know, God, the way he's worked in the lives of humans through the century. And these were all as human as we are. It's so interesting to watch his work with them and what he does. And Stephen is going to, you know, he's trying to say to these people, look, God has sent you deliverers in the past. 
They were leaders. They were ordained of God. They were raised up by his power. And you're, and you're getting on my case saying, I'm going to say, I'm saying things about Moses. It was our own people who wouldn't receive Joseph. They wouldn't receive Moses. They didn't receive Joseph until they saw him a second time. That by that time he had a Gentile bride he had preserved through seven years and so forth. And he said, and Moses by that time had a Gentile bride from Midian, you know, it, 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 and, and preserves her through all of the the. the famines that come on Egypt and so forth. It's just this an interesting picture. And he's saying, and you now what makes you think you would recognize God's deliverer if he came today? Because you're just like your fathers. You're stubborn in heart. And you're, he gives it to him at the end, and they give it to him at the end as well. But uh, we didn't get very far tonight. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not really. I'm having a great time with this. But So we've come as far as Verse 22, let's pick up there, if the Lord hasn't come, and he may. He may. Israel today again was saying, clearly, we're going to strike Iran. The other nations are not helping us. Bennett has put everybody on notice that we're going to strike Iran. Interesting. Uh, and the technology they're going to use is interesting, too. You didn't hear it here. It's called the rods of God. You can Google it. You can Google it. They come down out of the sky, no explosives, no nuclear power, rods, so long and so heavy, fired down at a speed unimaginable. And when they hit the ground, they produce the same thing a nuclear explosion does, but without radiation, without anything. The rods of God, we had to keep them from using them once before. With shared technology, we have it too. And look, if you can Google that, that means there's stuff up there. You have no idea what's up there. If you can Google this stuff and, and it comes up. When that stuff becomes information that Google can tell you about, then we have no idea what the generations are beyond that. But the Israelis have technology. You know, the that uh, many other parts of the world don't have. In the past, when I've talked to them over there, they said, look, why should we send a jet with bombs or missiles when we can send emails? We've been able to shut down their, their power plants, shut down their nuclear program with emails. We'd rather send them an email than a pilot, you know. Uh, but it's coming to the point where they're going to move, and we're all distracted with, with the pandemic, we're all distracted with the southern border. We're all distracted, you know, with Afghanistan. We're all distracted with China. We're all keep your eyes on Israel. Israel is God's time clock. Israel, it says, is a stumbling block of all the nations of the world and is a cup of trembling. Keep your eyes on Israel. So if we're here next week, we'll pick up where we left off. I encourage you to uh, read ahead. There's some great stuff in here as we're moving through Acts. Uh, let's have the musicians come. We'll sing a last song and then y'all can head out there and get enough caffeine to keep you up so you have a terrible night's sleep. <laughs> let's stand together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these things. And Lord, as I go through this, I'm just again so amazed how human all of your servants were, Lord. How you have worked in the lives of fallen men and women for ages. Lord, I'm amazed at that. And through the most difficult circumstances, Lord, and no doubt you've listened to generations griping and complaining and not understanding what you were doing and what you were setting up and that you had a plan and it was coming together, Lord. And I do the same thing, Lord. But we are very thankful that you you put on our skin, Lord, and you walked among us. And that we today have a high priest, and, and that you're not a high priest that can't be touched with our infirmities. Lord, you don't intellectualize, but you're actually touched, Lord. You feel, Lord, our struggles, our temptations. 
as you were tempted in every way, yet without sin. And Lord, you beckon us to come to the throne of grace, Lord, in time of need. Make that more real in our lives than it's ever been, Lord Jesus. Let us flee there in spite of our own imperfection and weakness and misunderstanding because you can feel those things in us and recognize them, Lord. And we know one day soon you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes. No sickness, no death, no curse. Because Joseph and Moses and all these others were only a picture of you, Lord. The real deliverer who's come. And Lord, you said that even when we were enemies, you died for us to prove your love. So Lord, our hearts are before you this evening. Let us... Lord, by your grace, Lord, garner out of these pictures that you've recorded, these things you place before us, the portion for our own lives for tonight and tomorrow as we go to work for this week, Lord. Give us something to carry with us, Lord, in our pilgrimage. And Lord Jesus, only you can do that. We love you, Lord. We look to you and we pray in your name. Amen.